each year at the beginning of the fellowship, I have the privilege of addressing a few words of explanation why we're here and exhortation to you as we begin our time together. Since we have new members of our fellowship in attendance each year, we believe it's important to set out our stall and explain why we've gathered and what our vision is, not just for the three days that we have with one another this week, but for the ongoing work and ministry of the fellowship as a force for gospel growth in our churches and in our denominations well beyond these three days. The Twin Lakes Fellowship is a ministerial fraternal. That is, we seek to provide a context and a forum for pastoral fellowship and friendship around a shared understanding of the biblical gospel, the calling of a faithful minister, and the mission that Christ has given to his church in the world. Next to the endowment and enablement of the Holy Spirit, few things are more urgently needed in pastors' lives in these days than the mutual encouragement of brothers in gospel ministry. Most of the best and the closest friendships that continue to nourish my own life as a Christian man and as a gospel minister have arisen or been nurtured in the context of the Twin Lakes Fellowship over the years. And so it's my prayer as we begin our time together that that will be your experience with one another as well. This year's theme, as you'll see from your conference booklet, your fellowship booklet, is From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, from the first stanza of Samuel Stone's great hymn that we sang just a few moments ago, The Church's One Foundation. We want to give some attention to the church, its ministry, its marks, its mission. And part of our reasoning there has to do with the mission of the Twin Lakes Fellowship itself. If you look at the back pages of your booklet, you'll see the 15 Twin Lakes talking points that set out our philosophy of ministry. We are unashamed in advocating and promoting a particular vision for the work of the gospel and the shape of biblically faithful churches, believing that it derives from the clear teaching of Holy Scripture and reflecting the consensus of evangelical and reformed piety and practice across the ages. Hudson Taylor was right, wasn't he, when he said that God's work done in God's way will never lack for supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack for supply. It may be that someone here has stopped really believing that. Certainly you still confess it to be true, no doubt. But maybe for someone here, the constant grind of a demanding ministry has shaken your confidence and you've begun to wonder if Christ's promises attaching to the means of grace are dependable after all. You've begun to wonder if perhaps the preached word and the water and the bread and the wine and the stammering prayers of the saints don't somehow need supplementing. Maybe they're really not enough to get God's work done after all. The Twin Lakes Fellowship really wants to send you back to your field of labor with your faith in God's means for doing God's work restored, strengthened, deepened. We want to send you back with your confidence resting in the supply of the Holy Spirit alone for your effectiveness and faithfulness in his service. And so we're going to take time over these three days to recalibrate our instruments, as it were. 
to get back to basics, to come back once again to Jesus, to his promises, and to the pattern of church life that he has given us in the scriptures, that we might renew our trust that God's work done in God's way will never lack for supply. One place where we get some help with that is Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. If you'll allow me, and if you have your Bibles to hand, would you please turn there uh, with me, Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30. I want to just take a few moments to set the tone and provide some context for the next few days that we have together. It's really not my purpose to give uh, an exhaustive exposition of the passage in detail, but I did want to offer a few ruminations on the text that I hope will be of some use as a word of exhortation and an encouragement to us as we get underway. Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30. This is the Word of God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. We praise God for His holy words. I want you to see three pairs of truths that our Savior holds together in our text so wonderfully. First of all, the pairing of prayer and praise. Uh, prayer and preaching, rather, not prayer and praise. Prayer and preaching. Then the pairing, secondly, of the highest doctrine of divine sovereignty with the clearest statement of the free offer of the gospel. And then, thirdly, the pairing of profound Trinitarian theology with bold, urgent, pleading evangelism. Prayer and preaching, divine sovereignty and the free offer, profound theology and pleading evangelism. First of all, look at the pairing of prayer and preaching. It's right there on the surface of the text, isn't it? In verses 25 and 26, Jesus talks to God as Father. In 27 to 30, he talks to a lost and weary generation. In 25 to 26, he gives thanks. 27 to 30, he pleads with sinners. 25 and 26, his movement is Godward. In 27 to 30, his movement is manward. The pairing of prayer and preaching, in many ways, expresses the heartbeat of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. This is what we're about. The central place of the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the Word and the prayer of the people of God. And Jesus, of course, is a paragon of prayerfulness, a diligent preacher of the gospel of the kingdom. What I think is particularly striking here is the proximity of those two themes in our text. They're brought together in the closest possible combination as though to remind us that 
they must always, always go together. In the rest of the chapter, prior to this point, we see an array of responses to Jesus, don't we? To his ministry, John the Baptist's uncertainty in the first six verses, the fickle, never satisfied complaints of the crowd, verses 7 to 19, the unrelenting unbelief of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum in 20 to 24. It's a pretty bleak picture, judged by the criteria of many a missions committee or sending agency, we'd probably be urged to pull our support for Jesus' ministry at this point. There's very little positive response at this point in his ministry. If ever there were grounds for discouragement in the work, surely this is it. But how does Jesus meet such negative responses? He offers a prayer of thanksgiving that God has in fact saved some the little children, not the wise and understanding. And then he goes on preaching, come to me. At the risk of oversimplifying the teaching of the text, brothers, isn't there a word of exhortation here for us? That we must fight discouragement when persevering in the preaching ministry seems to bear little fruit by a dogged refusal ever to sever the bond between praying and proclaiming the promises of God. There is surely something horribly wrong when we are longer in our pulpits speaking to our people for God than we are on our knees speaking to God for our people. No wonder we have a hard time combating disappointment and persevering in a hard place. Prayer and preaching. Then secondly, the emphasis here on the highest doctrine of divine sovereignty paired with the clearest statement of the free offer of the gospel. Verses 25 to 27. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The hiddenness or the revealedness of saving knowledge lies in the mystery of the gracious sovereign will of the triune God. And so Jesus gives thanks when all around there's rejection and unbelief and spiritual uncertainty about His identity and His mission. He gives thanks Because he conducts his ministry resting on the perfect sovereignty of God in salvation. Here's the safe haven in a storm of discouragement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Wasn't it Ed Clowney who said you could sum up the whole Bible's message in that phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord? Sometimes I think Charles Grandison Finney would be so proud of us, or at least of me, how easily I become a pastoral Pelagian. The right application of the correct techniques yields the desired results. That was Finney's scheme, wasn't it? The right application of the correct techniques mechanically produces 
the desired results. And I'm sure everyone in this room rightly repudiates that scheme at a doctrinal level, but isn't it terribly easy nevertheless to make it our standard operating procedure in the practicalities of daily ministry? It's easy to denounce pragmatism and gimmicks in others, but even the most conservative, ordinary means man can slip from confidence in the sovereign God who works by means to confidence in the right use of the means themselves, as though the means of grace were simply better techniques for achieving the same results. And when the means of grace don't work that way, the way we expect them to, we easily find ourselves disillusioned and discouraged. Brothers, don't we need to let the sovereignty of God become again for us much more than a mere mark of orthodoxy? Let it be a safe harbor for your soul in the often troubled seas of pastoral ministry. Sink your anchor there, and you will find resources for thanksgiving. Even when all around you there's unbelief and opposition, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And as we take refuge there, we find a source of encouragement. I hope you can see, though, that the soaring Calvinism of our Savior, if I could put it that way, never collapses into hyper-Calvinism, does it? Certainly, he asserts here the total inability of all people to save themselves. He is unambiguous in declaring the absolute necessity of the gracious, effectual call of God illuminating blind eyes and giving life to dead hearts. That's right there in the text. And yet, almost in the very same breath, he presses the offer of the gospel with remarkable directness to the very people who have until now been apparently impervious to his preaching. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers, let me ask you, how free is your gospel? How free is your gospel? Does your pulpit ring with an unconstrained offer of Christ to all men? And let's be clear, that's what Jesus is offering here. It's not first an offer of rest. Rest is a consequence of what Jesus offers here. What does he offer? He offers himself. Come to me and I will give you rest. You'll find rest when you find me. It's not benefits that the gospel offers. The benefactor himself is what is on offer. It's not the results of Christ's work that we are to hold out to the world merely abstracted from his person. It is Christ in whom are all the benefits of redemption that we must proclaim. We are blessed, you remember, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Where? 
in him. It's all in Christ, never abstracted from Christ. There is a kind of sly neo-nomianism that can steal into our ministries and into our Christian lives when we get this wrong. If we think only of the gospel as a kind of delivery mechanism for blessings, abstractly considered, then we will think of the Christian life in terms of problems for which the gospel supplies solutions, gaps in our spiritual experience that the gospel plugs, deficits in our growth and maturity the gospel will make up. And now do you see the gospel has become about me and my needs, and Jesus has become my supplier, the one who will fix my mess and straighten out my dysfunction and renovate my life. That is not biblical Christianity. That is idolatry. We're using Jesus as a means to an end. If I could replay the video of my pastoral ministry over the years and examine most carefully the seasons when I was least content, least happy in the work, most given to temptation and spiritual attack, closest to burnout and filled with a sense of defeat, I think I would discover that those were the times when I looked most for abstract blessings, for graces and experiences, divorced from seeking Jesus himself. Seek blessings and you'll miss them. Seek Jesus and you will find everything that your soul needs. Come to me and I will give you rest. It's not rest that the weary and the heavy laden need. It's Christ who gives them rest. It's not water that the thirsty need. It's Christ who causes living water to well up within them unto eternal life. So my prayer for each of us over these few days, my prayer for myself, as we sit under the Word, is that God will humble us and that He will call us back to Christ, clothed with His gospel, clothed with His benefits. It is that the idolatry of seeking blessings, but not seeking the Savior, would be irrevocably shattered in my heart and in yours. And we will begin again to set apart apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. I'm persuaded that a recovery of a freely, fully offered Christ would be revolutionary for our own souls and for our churches. Prayer and preaching, divine sovereignty and the free offer, finally, rich Trinitarian theology and bold, urgent evangelism. One of the distinctives of the Twin Lakes Fellowship over many years now has been a deep commitment to robust, reformed theological rigor and faithful evangelism. Believing those two things should go together ordinarily. And yet, let's be honest, 
brothers, hasn't it been the case that too often our finest theologians have not always been our most devoted evangelists? That our most doctrinal pulpits are not often the scene of the most impassioned gospel pleading that sinners come to Jesus. Jesus here in our passage calls us to another way, doesn't he? There is theology here of the most elevated kind. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus speaks about the sovereignty of the Father who blinds the eyes of the wise and understanding and reveals the truth to little children according to his good sovereign pleasure. In verse 27, Jesus speaks, I believe, about the covenant of redemption in which the Father gave authority to the Son in eternity to execute the office of mediator for the salvation of God's elect. And then, as he proclaims the unique knowledge and communion the Father has of the Son and the Son has of the Father, Jesus tells us he is authorized to extend that knowledge and communion to us. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The gospel that Jesus preached brings us wonderfully, staggeringly, into participation in the intra-Trinitarian fellowship of the Father with the Son by the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. Now, that is exalted theology. Exalted theology. And far from hindering his evangelism, it seems to provide, here in our text, it provides the basis of his evangelism, doesn't it? Jesus is authorized to reveal the Father to whomever he chooses. And so he preaches and offers himself to the world. Brothers, if our doctrine does not propel evangelism, our doctrine is wrong, or we have only a superficial grasp of its meaning and its implications. The deeper our grasp of the sovereignty of God and the mysteries of Trinitarian theology and the covenantal structure of redemptive history, the more we know of the rich fabric of biblical truth, the more it should ignite in us the kind of gospel boldness that we see here in our Savior. I would be prepared to argue, writes Martin Lloyd-Jones, that in many ways evangelistic preaching, notice he believes in evangelistic preaching, in many ways evangelistic preaching should be more rather than less theological than any other kind of preaching. Evangelism, he says, that is not theological is not evangelism at all in any true sense. I assert, therefore, that every true true type of preaching must be theological, including evangelistic preaching. That's the pattern we see here in Jesus' ministry, isn't it? Rich theological profundity, driving, generating direct, urgent, pleading, insistent, evangelistic preaching. The two things should go together. Of course, sometimes you'll hear the argument that evangelism is what church members do out there in the world, 
Monday to Saturday, and preachers do something else, Sabbath by Sabbath from the pulpit. That seems to me highly improbable. It seems to me highly improbable that church members will become the kind of regular evangelists in their several vocations that we hope they will. If we are not ourselves regular evangelists in our own vocation before their eyes, frankly, to argue for evangelism from the pew but never evangelism from the pulpit, I think is a false choice and one that our Puritan and Reformed forebears at least would certainly not endorse. To look no further than the Shorter Catechism, for example, question 89, the Westminster Divines ask, how is the Word made effectual unto salvation? The answer, the Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. The Spirit of God, the divines say, ordinarily makes use of the preached word, yes, for building up of believers in holiness and comfort, to be sure, but also for convincing and converting sinners. Conversion in our confessional tradition ordinarily happens under the preaching of the word. Evangelism ought to find its natural home, its native environment, in reformed pulpits. I wonder if that's the kind of ministry you regularly exercise. Do you preach for conversion? Do you go after stony, hard hearts, slumbering consciences of those who hear you? Do you press the invitation to come to Jesus in whom alone is their rest? That's how Jesus preached and how our Puritan forebears preached. I wonder if you will agree with me that it is entirely possible to be so averse to the manipulative techniques that we can see in abundance elsewhere that we overcompensate and become virtually phobic about passionate appeals to the conscience and to the heart of our unconverted hearers? Is it possible to be so shy of Arminian excesses that we avoid calling unbelievers to immediate repentance and faith on anything like a regular basis? Is it possible to be so determined to redress the radical individualism of pop evangelical piety that we begin simply to assume that all our hearers are converted, that covenant children never actually need to hear the summons of Christ to come to Him without delay in personal faith and true repentance? Could we perhaps adopt a disarming conversational style and offer a calm and reasoned apologetic, one that will speak credibly to a new age of skepticism, and yet fail to communicate anything, anything of the alarm an unbelieving world really ought to feel at the fast-approaching judgment. 
What is there of Baxter in your preaching? I preached as though never to preach again, a dying man to dying men. What is there of John Knox, about whom we will hear more tomorrow, give me Scotland or I die, or I, or I die? Brothers, our theological riches ought to propel evangelistic zeal. It ought to fill our mouths with urgency and fervor for the lost. The absence of evangelism and evangelists among those of us who style ourselves confessional surely indicates spiritual dysfunction at some basic level about which we ought to be much more alarmed than we are. There's something wrong when the explosive power of our confessional theology fails to translate into evangelistic zeal. Something terribly wrong. So here are three pairs. Prayer and preaching, divine sovereignty and a freely offered Christ, rich theology and direct, pleading, urgent evangelism. And the Twin Lakes Fellowship exists to multiply ministries that ring with those emphases, believing they reflect the pattern set in Scripture by our Master Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believing that obedience to that pattern will be the path both of your happiness in ministry and of your usefulness under God in ministry. So may the Lord meet with us and deal with us and renovate us for his glory as we sit under the word these few days together. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we praise you for the fellowship we have with you and in you with one another. As we bow before you, we would begin our time at this fellowship confessing our sin, confessing the times when we have made ministry about the exercise of our gifts rather than the proclamation, the placarding, of Christ and his perfect sufficiency as a savior to sinners before the eyes of all our hearers. We confess that we have become so absorbed at times with precision that we have failed to plead with the lost. And we confess that there have been moments when we have sought abstract blessings instead of seeking the great benefactor of our souls, the Lord himself. And so as we bow before you, we cry to you that in these days together, you would rend the heavens and come down and pour out your spirit upon us and wield your word like a surgeon's scalpel in our hearts to wound and to heal and to send us back to our places of labor resolved to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ with joy and vigor and urgency for our Master's glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.